You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. One of Us is a podcast and video network funded all but entirely by donations and subscriptions. We do accept pitches for audio-based or banner ads, but on a case-by-case basis. If you're interested in that, contact us at oneofusnet at gmail.com. With the amount of audio and video content we generate, it is expensive and extremely time-consuming to keep things running. Please go to the webpage oneofus.net and sign up for a subscription at 2 5 10 or $25 and get a ton of bonus content. One of us needs and appreciates all your support. Hey, and welcome to another episode of Digital Noise. I am your host, Chris Cox, as always, and joining me is my co-host this week, Sir John Golson. Hello. <laughs> you, now have to t- you now have to talk like that for the whole rest of the episode. Yes. <laughs> what is it? The, the, the classic English twit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that. I'll just, yeah, every movie. Yeah. Today I'm talking about Wayne's World. <laughs> yes. In fact, we talk about home releases and we are starting off with Wayne's World. <laughs> because why are they re-releasing it? I'm not sure. I love Wayne's World. I'm yeah. a big fan. Always been a fan of Wayne's World, right? I know it's not everybody's cup of tea, but I've seen it probably 10 times over the space of my life. It did. I was one of those guys who was like, now I have to buy the Queen's Greatest Hits after it came out, you know, like so many other people did. It actually elevated that song, which was, you know, a decade or so old at that point, into the number two spot, Billboard's number two. That's how much of an effect that had. But the reason I asked, why are they doing this again? Because this is another one of those cheap grabs. Where you're like, oh, it's exactly the last Blu-ray. They've just put it in a weirdly bright orange steel box case. Did it come out in 92? Is it an anniversary release? Is it a fake anniversary release? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It came out in 92. Okay. It didn't, did it even say anything? I don't think it said, I don't know where it is. I don't even think it said anything about anniversary on it, but whatever. It's... If you don't already have Wayne's World on Blu-ray and you'd like Wayne's World on Blu-ray, well, I guess you're going to buy, yes, it says 30th Anniversary Party On Edition, which is, you know. But like I said, they didn't really do anything to make it special other than a steel case. And, you know, who, what is the, like, are people traveling in delicate situations that they're worried their Blu-rays are going to get damaged, which is why they want steel hey, boxes. I love steel books. I don't get the whole steel book. I thing. wish all of, I wish every single release was in a steel book. <laughs> I really do. I think I wish I would buy more physical media if steel book was the standard, uh, like, uh, yeah, packaging for everything. Well, fair enough. I mean, the one advantage is it does come with a digital code. Yeah. But anyway, about the movie, I was saying the other day that, uh, I think this is only one of two actually adapted from a Saturday Night Live sketch movies that are any good at all. What was, what's the other one? I couldn't remember and I was hoping you would. (laughs) Okay. There's a bunch of them that are like mediocre. Like I find Superstar mediocre. I find Stuart Saves His Family mediocre. Coneheads is an oddity. Yeah. Uh, I mean, 
people br- always bring up Blues Brothers, but I feel like that was in that predates feel, Saturday Night Live. Yeah, I feel like that's an independent Belushi Aykroyd thing. I mean, not the movie, but the, yeah. the whole Blues Brothers act they were doing before yeah. either one of them was on Saturday Night Live. What else is there? There's uh, Roxbury and Pat, which is awful. No, they're both terrible. And uh, Ladies Man, which is which is watchable but not great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to remember what the other one was. I remember looking at the list when I was putting this together and going. I know there's one. I know there's one more. And I'm not thinking about Wayne's World two, although I like Wayne's World two. I mean, I guess maybe I was thinking of Blues Brothers. I don't know, but well, I, I guess that you're right. Everybody that- kind of has their favorites. Like you'll hear people online say, "Oh, you know, Superstar is one of the best ones," or "Stuart Saves His Family" is one of the best ones. And it's like, I mean, you know, I think Wayne's World is at the top of that heap. Wayne's World for the longest time was the movie that. I let me take you back to the early nineties on this on our on this magical crystal ship. Um, <laughs> it was a movie that was often people always had on at their house when I was a teenager. Like I would go over to friends' house and they would be like, "Let's watch Wayne's World," or like we would rent something and we'd rent like something we hadn't seen plus Wayne's World. Like it was always in rotation. <laughs> yeah. Like my senior year of high school, it was it was. We all had those movies about that age of high school that you were like you ended up. Even if it was just putting on the background while people were hanging out, yeah. that played a lot. Like we had like Monty Python and the Holy Grail, Apocalypse Now, A Clockwork Orange, stuff like that. You're like, this is always playing somewhere. Yeah, Wayne's <laughs> World was that for me when I was 17. So I've seen this movie a ton of times. If you don't know what it's about, if you've never heard of Wayne's World before, uh, it is the uh, the kind of proto stoner like uh, they're not even stoners, but it's like that Beavis and Butthead. Like you have like a pair. Who consume media? Yeah, which is like proto Beavis and Butthead. I mean, they're a stoner without ever telling you that they're stoners, right? Because it's like they're like innocent stoners. They're kind of. They, I think they're, they're straight like, edge. They're like, like I don't think they're they like, drink or they're, they're like Christian pot. metalheads. Or <laughs> yeah. you know? uh, they have a public access show, and the movie is about them um, transitioning their public access show to like a national stage. Yeah, they, they, you know, and can they do this? Is it a Faustian bargain? Are they going to sell their souls? By having, uh, by elevating their show from, from, you know, cable access to, uh, <laughs> to network or whatever. Yeah. Um, hugely, inf- it's, it's, it's a funny movie in that it is both trapped in amber in regards to, there's stuff in it that if you were a youth today, you're just like, I don't get this because it was 30 years ago. Oh, there's so much, there's the whole sequence where they're like making fun of people uh, sneaking in and advertising. Uh-huh. And they're just super specific ad references to yeah. things that they don't use in advertising. Yeah, a little yellow anymore. different is no longer an ad. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then there's other things that are like really influential. Like it really is the movie that pivoted Rob Lowe towards comedy, which oh, everybody yeah. thinks of him as like a comedic actor now. But at the time it was like, Oh, he's in a comedy. This is strange. Um, there's that. There's the breaking of the fourth wall, which I, I have a really hard time thinking a movie of a movie before this. Yeah. Where they broke the fourth wall as much as they do in this one. Right. Which we can see the DNA of and things like Deadpool and things like that. Um, so. On the one hand, very, very influential. On the other hand, very much a product of the time. So specifically a product of the time that a lot of people blame the, the fact that the second one bombing on the fact that hair metal was dead because between one and two grunge broke and they were no longer seen as hip or cool because metal was, was all but dead by the time the second one came out. Well, it's interesting about, I think some of the history of who made this is Penelope Spheris, the director is 
Outside of the fact her first job was producing Albert Brooks shorts on the first season of Saturday Night Live. Mm-hmm. Other than that, this is not someone you think, hey, we should get her for like a harmless PG Saturday Night Live comedy, right? Uh, she did the Decline of Western Civilization movies, which were the ultimate and maybe still are the ultimate document of punk rock in America. The first yeah. one, second one about metal, the third one about I, I've never been clear entirely about what the <laughs> I think it's like, like grunge metal slash punk i don't know the third one is not the best one of the series but then she made a movie called suburbia that i love which is very much a punk rock movie as yeah. well and she went from that to directing wayne's world and you're like Wait, why who who went yeah that's the lady to do this a totally different style i mean it's still music oriented because these guys are you know i mean it's very much you get tia carrera as like you know, the world's most milk-a-toast rock star that they all think is amazing, <laughs> who apparently did her own singing and yeah. playing in it. Um, I always like Tia Carrere. She's one of those people like, you're more interesting than your career would indicate. Mm-hmm. Uh, she sang the closing credits song on Batman Mask of the Phantasm. Speak. We were talking about really? Batman earlier, yeah. Didn't realize this. Yeah. But, like, lots of great, like, cameos in here and appearances. Laura Flynn Boyle, who I knew at that point from Twin Peaks, uh-huh. but doing just hysterically goofy performance as the ex-girlfriend. Um, uh, Chris Farley with one of my most referenced ever tiny characters in a Saturday Night Live movie. The, anytime someone says the word gesticulate, I think of Chris Farley in that movie. <laughs> uh, and Alice Cooper, of course, being yeah. the expert on, what was it, Wisconsin? This is, mm-hmm. yeah. Milwaukee. <laughs> has a, has an odd amount of knowledge about Milwaukee. I don't know, man. I think this is still Milwaukee. funny. I did, in fact, rewatch this when they said, I was like, you know what? It's been like two years since I've seen it. I'll watch it again. And yes, it's still funny. I think at best there's a couple for what cringeworthy by today's standard stuff there is. It's just barely cringy a little bit because these guys are just such. They're just so goddamn harmless. It's, you know, at their worst. The way that Mike Myers treats his girlfriend, his ex-girlfriend there is a little like, mm, yeah. that lady needs professional help. But, you know, it's all so absurd. I think you're like, if you're taking that stuff seriously, you're maybe comedies aren't for you. I don't know. <laughs> uh, th- this does have the, the ex- existing extras, which isn't very much from the previous one, but. Hey man, it's Wayne's World. I'm always gonna love Wayne's World. I'll always come back to Wayne's World. I always have that Queen song, Bohemian Rhapsody, stuck in my head for like a week afterwards. <laughs> it's party time. It's excellent. It is party time and excellent. We move on to another movie that predates, in my experience, uh, my love of films way before Wayne's World. That's FX and FX2. Okay, more so FX. Back in 1986, this weird little idea for an action thriller came out. I didn't see it in the theater. I don't even know if it played near us. Uh, but, I saw it when it came out on videotape and immediately bought a copy of it because I was like, I love this. And I was a little, you know, I was a movie fanatic cinephile and when I was 16 years old when this came out. And the idea being, this is a special effects guy for movies who does like horror and sci-fi movie FX who gets asked by the Justice Department to stage the murder of a you know, high-level mobster that has turned and is going to give evidence and they're afraid because people are trying to kill him in the mob. So if you stage it, they'll think he's already dead and then they won't try to kill him. And then, ha-ha, surprise, the trial's still going on and he's here. Only to find out that the moment they stage the murder, with him being saying, well, you're the only guy who can handle the gun here, that it looks like, shit, it wasn't staged. Somebody switched out real bullets in the gun actually had you kill the guy, and now everyone, including these guys from the Justice Department, who apparently kind of a little splinter group, are out to kill him. Yeah, it's a great setup. So what does he do? 
Well, I mean, he's not like a military guy or anything. He doesn't have a bunch of experience with being a super badass. But what he does know is special effects stuff in the industry, which includes explosions and tricks. And he uses all his skills in that to, you know, come out on top and and beat the bad guys. And what a cool idea for a movie. And especially when you get this is a, you know, Brian Brown, who's been in a handful of memorable films, but I've always liked him. Australian actor is very charismatic. But what really sells it is the cop who's chasing him, Brian Dennehy, who's just like the guy born to play like a world weary cop with a, with a, with a smirk who ends up, of course, on his side. And this is just super, super fun. I had never seen these before. I knew my mom liked them. Uh, first one is actually pretty, pretty violent as well. Oh yeah, um, which was a little bit surprising um, to me, based on kind of what I knew about the movie going in. I think the first one has got such an interesting plot that I'm surprised that they haven't mined it for a remake. I think the I yeah. think the plot is so strong that it's that that someone should dust it off I actually, and remake it. When I rewatched it, I posted on social media saying just that. Yeah. And people argued like, well, but too much is CG now. I'm like, yes, but you do realize that not everything is CG and there's a whole, yeah. lots of people who have the career of working with practical effects and explosions. This is still a thing that exists. Yeah. The second one becomes a little more MacGyvery, where yeah. it's sort of like he's using the tricks to like, the, the first one, it felt like he is, He's mostly using disguises. He's mostly going undercover as he's trying to clear his name. There's not a whole lot of the stuff that's in the second one, which is more... Um, in the second one, I think he's also called upon to fake an assassination, right? And then... and then, Well, that- they're, they're assigned to uh, stake out a killer with this weirdly super elaborate, like over-elaborate thing yeah. that I'm even like... Is this any of this necessary? <laughs> you know, it was just so we could have a nude scene was yeah. why all this is in there. And that goes wrong. His, uh, his girlfriend's ex-husband, who's a cop, but they kind of have a connection. They're kind of friends get, who gets him to come help in the first place ends up getting killed. And he realizes looking at the footage that they didn't realize he had set up a camera in there that shit, there was someone else in there who killed this guy, not the person, not the serial killer they were chasing. Yeah, I could see, I think it's a matter of like chocolate and vanilla on these two because the second one is a little bit sillier. It's less violent. Yeah. It's a little goofier. There's more There's more buddy cop interplay between Brian Brown's character and Brian Dennehy's character. Yeah. And there's also more gimmicks. There's way more gimmicks. Uh, his, his special effects expertise figures way more into the action set pieces than the first one. In the first one, the, his special effects background is a plot driver. It's basically his profession is what causes him to get in over his head because they, they think that, oh, we'll get this guy and he'll do this thing and he'll be our patsy. Mm-hmm. So it drives the plot. The second one is sort of like he's an action hero that gets himself out of jams by uh, using boxing clown robots and like right. things like that. Like, you know, he has his different gadgets that he uses very, very much more in the vein of MacGyver. And apparently, I guess they were going to try to turn this into a TV series. They did they turn it into a TV, TV series. series. Yeah. So you can kind of envision when the second one, with the second one, what that TV series was, which was again, like, oh, I'm going to rig this stuff up for whatever it is. That's the problem of the week. Right. Um, and, and I saw a lot of like, when I posted that I was watching it on social media, there was a lot of like, oh, FX2 is awesome. And like, really? Yeah. And so I think it's a matter of flavor, right? I think it's a matter of like, what do you, what do you, what flavor do you prefer? Now, me, I preferred the flavor of FX1 more. Me I found too. it more serious. It kind of reminded me in a way of like, uh, 
like a born movie yeah. in, in regards to the way the fight scenes, that fight scene in the apartment where the, they're just beating the crap out of each other and like, Oh, that's a smashing great everything. fight scene. Yeah. And I was like, this is very much, you know, at the time, a lot of the action movies were just gunfight, mm. just shooting at each other. And this, the fight scene in FX felt very much like, Oh, this wouldn't come to be the way fight scenes are shot until decades later. Yeah. Um, and agreed. Yeah, and and I thought, yeah, I, so my preference and flavor was FX, and I thought it was yeah. was really solid, really well done. I'm just shocked to hear anyone prefers FX too, because like I think it's a cute follow up sequel, but the first one I I think of as like a minor classic. Like there's so much in here that sort of set the tone for stuff later. It just works all the way imagine, through. And I have the to second there were kids. The second, yeah, the second one is just so freaking goofy. Yeah, and yeah, the whole time he's got the. I've got this thing going on. You're like, and a lot of the stuff he's using, like the tricks, they're not even really based on Hollywood special effects stuff. You're just like, what is that? that that's not an effects <laughs> thing. That's just, a, that's like the equalizer laying traps and shit. Yeah. Like, that's nothing to do with Hollywood. In fact, the only thing I can even think of in the whole movie that you could say is based to some degree in a science fiction way on Hollywood special effects is that he's got this robotic clown that's stronger than a man for some reason that you can get into like a bodysuit for well, and make clown it do. Strength, Chris. <laughs> fought a clown. Clown strength, right? But they get, the, there's a fun scene they do with it though i'll say like okay that was super fun to watch but like i said it's all played with a smirk the one thing i say that i i like in this film that over the first one is that yeah the stuff between the bryans is great it's yeah. just gold when they're together and they don't really get to be together much in the first one no. this one they're like kind of a team you're like all right i would watch i would have watched a whole series of movies with the two of them like smirking at crime <laughs> it's funny i watched the trailer for the second one uh and it sells it as a buddy cop between the two and I watched the trailer for the second one immediately after watching the first movie. And so it was like, they're back together again. And I was like, well, they weren't really together the first time. No, like, not till like the that? last couple minutes. <laughs> and this comes up with a few extras that were worth watching, I thought. There's a on-camera interview with uh, the director of FX, Robert Mandel. And then featurettes on the making of FX and FX2. And usually because they're older stuff, I wouldn't even bother watching it. But I've never seen anything about the making of FX. I'm like, I want to know. And there is some interesting stuff in there. You're like, oh, this is really cool. There's a lot of stuff you go, how did they do that? That's pretty neat. These are fun. And I highly recommend if you've never checked these out and you're a movie fan, this should be on your, okay, I've got to see these now list. Would yeah. you? Would you agree? Do you concur? I concur. Although I think one is stronger than two. Well, another old movie that has been on my, I didn't see it originally less, but I've always meant to is the toolbox murders. And that's because I grew up a horror hound. I'd always see this thing in the, in the, you know, the box in the video store. And I was like, eh, I don't know. Maybe eventually never got around to it. Well, now <laughs> mysteriously it's uh, from blue underground. It's out on 4k which loves to put out movies that don't really have a good reason for being okay. But you know what? Fuck it. Here we are. I'm glad to have it uh, that, you know, along with several of the other things that Blue Underground has put out and put so much care and love into, even though this is and the movie, this is one of those things that starts off with, this is a true story. It is not even faintly a true story, apparently. They kept insisting it was, and journalists were literally hounding them, going, what story? What are you talking about? Tell us anything. Anything. And like, uh, uh, no, it's not a true story at all and the thing is for the first 20 minutes of this movie john i'm like this is one of the most fast-paced crazy brutal slashers i have ever seen 
And then nothing else happens for the whole rest of the film, and it turns into like a procedural TV show. I I've seen so many of these seventies uh, uh, women getting stabbed movies in the past <laughs> month and a half. They're all starting to blend together. Yeah, um, I kind of liked the. This had vibes, and I. That's all I can say about it. Really, is that it had uh, r- really kind of sleazy, sinister vibes that I responded to. And again, it wasn't for, for, for a good chunk of it. It wasn't boring. Um, and yeah, it was really, it was genuinely unpleasant in a way that some of its peers are not. And for that, I, I tip my hat to it. Um, because it's, it's again in the pantheon of these things where it's just like, okay, for an hour of this, you're going to basically watch women get stabbed. It's like, whatever way that it's cut or the music or the acting or the performances that help it get to a place that its peers don't get to, even if the surface of it is the same, uh, I can see why it's had the longevity that it's had as a movie. Like it's not a great movie, but I can certainly understand why it survived uh, to, to end up as a 4k. Yeah. No, I mean, it's much more brutal when it is doing the killing stuff than almost anything I had seen from this era. Like, it's very graphic. It's very disturbing with this mass killer with a toolbox, as you might imagine, going apartment to apartment and killing beautiful, like, half-naked, even when he gets there, women in these places. I mean, it doesn't leave much to the imagination either in terms of, like, lack of clothes or the killings themselves. But then it is just kind of a whodunit thing. I mean, there's literally not another killing till like, the third act, yeah, you know, and this is just like 20 minutes of the movie and then that, but it is overall is for what it is or super low budget movie. It's decently shot. It's got the, um, the kid from land of the lost is one of the main characters on it. A little bit more grown up who always in my head go, he was in the Brady bunch, right? No, he was from land of the lost. I forget his character name, but you probably know uh, it's either Marshall will or Holly. Is Will. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I only know that from you the, know opening that from the credit lyrics, yeah. <laughs> There's like actually a bunch of people in here are like old school TV actors that you're like, there was like four or five people. I'm like, I know them from somewhere and I had to look it up. Like, oh yeah, they were on the, yeah. the Gilligan's Island or whatever the fuck. <laughs> it's, I think if you're a slasher fan, it's one you do want to in fact see. It's not one I'm just going to write off because there's enough interesting going on here that I'm like, yeah, this is worth seeing that the ending is, I mean, they really kind of let you know very early on, well, it's clearly this guy, but then it adds a twist to that being true that is a little more interesting, but a little inexplicable too. (laughs) I found it, I found it last time I was on, you and I reviewed the Giallo set that had a strip nude for your killer Mm -hmm. and, um, what else was torso? And I found what, this better than two out of three of those giallos. You like uh, what? What, um, what have they done to your daughters? Yeah, what have they done to your daughters? I liked. I liked more than Toolbox, but in regards to these type of movies, I thought Toolbox held its own with some things that are considered classics of giallo. I don't know that Toolbox is considered a giallo. I don't. I, I guess it's probably not influenced by. But yeah. um, but to me, they were in the same ballpark, and I and I liked it more than a couple of the ones that were that were better esteemed from that previous box set. Well, this comes with two commentaries. One is a new one with critics Troy Howarth and Nathaniel Thompson uh, dissecting the whole thing. Another is an archival one, which uh, was recorded with producer Tony Didio, uh, director of photography Gary Graver, and star Pamela Ferdin that has come out 
out on previous releases. And then there's a whole series of featurettes, some of which are, are, are new or recent, kind of looking through like interviews with various people involved, the director, the actors and, and what have you. But which, you know, that's a lot for a movie like the toolbox murders to even exist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I imagine a lot of people get that phone call. It's like, Hey, you got a call, honey. Yeah. Who is it? They said they want to interview about the toolbox murders. Hang up. It's a prank. <laughs> I don't know. This is, I guess it's, I get I, fun is the wrong word, but I guess it's well worth watching if you like this sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, we're going to move on to a movie called This Game's Called Murder. This Game's Called Murder. Can I just say off the bat, that is a terrible title. <laughs> My first thought here is like, what is it called? The, this Game is Called Murder. This Game's Called this Murder. Game's called it's a murder. contraction, John. It makes it easier to fit on the poster. Yeah. <laughs> this is... Oh God, how do I, there's a, I've seen a lot of movies that tonally feel like this and they're almost all these kind of forgettable direct to streaming or, or home release. Maybe they would have come out like in a local small theater, like the Dobie for one weekend or something. But like, you know what I mean? Where they're like, they're like pseudo they're grindhouse, kinda, they're pseudo they're grindhouse, all neon, hyper colored. Yeah. Uh, everybody is kind of ridiculous. It's really violent. It has lots of nudity. The plot doesn't make a bit of sense, but it's so absurd. It's clear not supposed to be in our world anyway. It's yeah. one of those. And I, there's a, a few of those. I, I can go, okay, I like that. I don't know if I'm going to be putting this game called murder on my list for so, that. It's not terrible. Ron Perlman's the head of a dysfunctional family. Natasha Hinstridge is the matriarch of the family. He does, uh, streaming pay-per-view snuff films. His wife is obsessed with Jesus and ramen. Well, his main um, thing is that he owns a shoe company. Yeah. That's the top shoe company in the world, but all they make is red women's shoes. Like yeah. one shoe, that's all they make. They have a daughter that's rebelling. It, it's There's a lot going on. None of it clicks together as a cohesive whole. Um, and, and I feel like I kind of felt sorry for the actors when I was watching this because... I don't think any of the actors are quote unquote bad, but they can't, they can't seem to find the center. They can't really, you have to give an actor like something to hold on to so that they have an understanding of what it is that they're conveying. Otherwise you're just getting them to give line readings Yeah, and everybody gives perfectly fine line readings, but I don't think anybody on set had a feel for what it is that they were trying to execute from a story standpoint. Well, the star is the daughter, Vanessa yeah. Morano, and the story follows her as she's, I mean, she's a character you instantly dislike because mm. she's dislikable. She's yeah. a little rich girl rebelling who's just treats everybody like shit around her. And she hangs out with a bunch of like sort of punk rejects that cause trouble around the city and stuff where she's having sex with the one nice one. Who's like the chef for everyone. Yeah. And, there's a lot that just focuses on that and this group of sort of crazy punk rock girls and among them that are sort of competitive with her in a way. I don't know, man. It's just, it's dredging up stuff from so many other much better films, but only pieces, bits and pieces and putting them together in this distasteful soup of nobody that you like at all. But nobody is bad in an interesting, fun way. Perlman is usually great at this type of role. He's not in it enough to be that interesting here. I mean, I think some of the stuff is well shot. I think some of the the ideas in it are, okay, this would be a fun idea to put into something. 
but this just never really comes together. It's shot like a Schumacher Batman movie. Yes. It's like, it's all hyper color, neon, day glow. Um, they find some really interesting locations to shoot at. It's almost never not visually interesting, but it's just, it's, it's pretty close to incoherent. Uh, from a from a story and plot standpoint, yeah, um, you kind of watch it feeling like you're starting to get a handle on what's happening, and it never really coalesces into anything worthwhile. Even though it's got all these different ingredients, it's like nothing. It's one of those nothing gels. Blatant attempt from an actual studio to make a cult film, yeah, and those so rarely work. Yeah, I mean, just one every ten years they get to actually work, and this is one of those that just didn't. You know, uh, this does come with a few extras. There's interviews with Ron Perlman, Tasha Hen- Henstridge, uh, Vanessa Moreno, and some more of the cast, and then the trailer. But yeah, I mean, I can't condemn it. But at the same time, unless what we're describing is exactly your type of thing, which I mean, there's got to be someone, right? That's like all they like is stuff like this. I don't know, man. I know, I'm sure, like, God bless him. Tim League probably thinks this is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we rarely, I love Tim League. He's a friend. And, but he and I so rarely like the same <laughs> crazy type of movies. I'm like, really? You like that? Like, okay. This feels like a movie that League would be like, oh my God, you guys have to see this game's called Murder. Huh. <laughs> Maybe so. Maybe so. It's, I don't know. It, yeah. It's, um, uh, yeah. It, it's one of those, we can sit here and cherry pick it or like, it's just when it comes down to it, the whole. It, to me, it just I keep coming back to the whole of it because I kept I I kept when I was watching it, thinking of the individual pieces and going like, well, really, that's fine. Like it's shot fine. Well, really, it's acted fine. Well, really, it's <laughs> this part's fine. I just don't think any of it comes together. Mm, yeah. Fair enough. Well, we're gonna move on to another film that actually premiered on Netflix last year called the dry and uh, i wasn't on the review we did have a review on there apparently the folks on the review really really liked it a whole lot Mm. so i was excited to see this Mm. i tend to like eric banna overall i think that his career has been very mixed with up and downs that i think he was on track to become an a-list guy and maybe it was ang lee's the hulk that that derailed that i don't know but somewhere along the line it just never really happened and he turned into a reliably good performer in any number of like C to B grade films that come out. Right. But I'm like, okay, that's cool. And he's playing a federal agent who returns to his hometown in uh, Victoria, uh, Australia, where apparently a childhood friend has murdered his wife and uh, their son before killing himself. And he's like, what the fuck? And he goes back there partially like, I'm having a hard time believing this is what happened. Like, you know, he's not full on sold on it, but he's like, yeah. And like, you know, there, there's stuff going on in the town. A lot of the towns, people are like, man, fuck that guy. I refuse to say, I feel sorry. He's dead. He'd be like, he murdered these people. And there's the feeling that a lot of the town don't like him either because he apparently had, when he left town 20 years earlier, he was leaving because of harassment because he was suspected along with this guy who's dead now with the death of his girlfriend who uh, apparently had been murdered slash drowned. And it really, I don't want to say what the the reasonings were because it's one of those series of flashbacks of the movie. They reveal more and more, but a lot of people in the town were like, you were involved somehow. And his father helped him, like, you need to get out of here. You need to go to the city. You know, th- this is not going to go well. 
So he's not very welcome outside of the other female friend in the group there who's, who's you know, kind of glad to see him. There's a little bit of romance that feels like it's going to strike up here. And the parents of the dead guy are like, we know he didn't do this. There's no way he would have done this. Something else is going on. Please, please, please. You're, you're, you know, you're an investigator. Investigate. Please look into this. Mm-hmm. And it's a cool setup, right? I think the problem ultimately is that this title is very accurate. This movie is very dry. It is very dry. <laughs> yeah. It's, I, there's nothing about it that isn't smart. It's just ultimately a bit of a chore to get through because there's nothing about it that's very exciting either. No, I'm sure the book was better. It's, uh, yeah. it's very novelistic in its approach. It's, uh, I it never got my blood pumping. <laughs> yeah. Um, I find Banna in general, and I think this is, I think this is why stardom never clicked for him. I find him too much of a cipher, hmm. and I think that a lot of movie stars are movie stars because they have an individual energy that they bring to a role, no matter if they're – Ryan Reynolds is a uh, – not Ryan Reynolds. Ryan Gosling is a good example of someone who is quiet but has his own personal energy. So when you cast Gosling, even if he's playing a role that's subdued and quiet, there's still something that's specifically Gosling's. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where we find really like the actors and movie stars that we love to see are ones that – it's not just a matter of them being a chameleon, like a like a Gary Oldman or somebody like that who just disappears into a role. There's also a thing of like, there's certain people who it's just an energy. Uh, Goldblum is a great example because he catches a lot of flack for, oh, he always plays Jeff Goldblum. But you pay to see that energy. Yeah. You're paying to see Jeff Goldblum's interpretation. He's, he's that character actor whose character yeah. is basically himself. Yeah. And we love that unique character because nobody else is like it. Vanna to me is all as a cipher. Like yeah. Vanna to me when he when he's in a role, it's just he's a he's a blank slate. Yeah. Like I don't think there's anything about his own personal energy that is evident on screen in any of the roles that he has. Now he's competent. Again, he can read lines. Yeah. He can read lines in a convincing manner. He doesn't embarrass himself. But I also don't think that when I hear Eric Vanna's in a movie, I'm not like, ah, like he doesn't seem like he has the charisma that's inherent with anybody who's going to be a star. I'm yeah. always like, what is the thing that you would define as, you know, sometimes I forget what he looks like in my head. I'm like, wait, what does Eric Bana look like? Yeah. Because he's just, there's nothing distinctive about the guy. You're like, yeah, you're a good actor and all that, but you don't have anything that makes me go, Eric Bana, yeah, yeah. that guy. In the dry, you have a case of a, you have a case of casting. So you've cast Eric Bana, you've cast him in a role that's mostly quiet. So you have a, a a an an actor whose default energy is a blank slate anyways, not saying anything for long stretches of time. And it's hard because he doesn't hold the screen in the same way someone would uh, like a different actor would. Uh I'm sure Eric Bana is listening to this right now, pulled over in his just car crying. And silently sobbing. <laughs> well, except he's not his face isn't moving. Yeah, <laughs> using yeah, using uh, Australian $100 bills to wipe his tears away. Right, um right. <laughs> No, but but I think that's the problem with the dry is if you cast a different actor where when you look at them there's there's a pulse and there's something and there's something behind their eyes and they're thinking or, or even in this particular case of the story that you buy them as maybe somewhat sinister. Mm. Like maybe they are, maybe they do have a dark past. Maybe there is something wrong with them. Um, or maybe too good where in this particular case of the story, you're going, well, how could they, they seem so nice in this, you have a blank. Yeah. So this question of whether or not he was ever involved in anything in his past that was, um, uh, particularly dark is it's not a question that you that you 
internally ask yourself when you're watching the performer. It's a question the movie asks through plotting, but it's not something that when you're seeing him in these long scenes where he's looking out bedroom windows and having flashbacks <laughs> that you're like, oh, could I see this guy doing this or not? Yeah. It's like, it's, I didn't really like the dry. I found it, um, I found it uninvolving. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, it's like I said, it's, it's well made. It just ultimately is. Yeah, a little disinteresting. There's not enough there. It feels like one of those things like this is probably a pretty good book, as you yeah. were saying, but I, which reportedly it is. The one interesting little trivia bit is that Gretchen, who is the, the, the only other surviving one of the group of friends that he has sort of a romance with, is played by Genevieve O'Reilly, who plays Mon Mothma in the new Star Wars films, oh. which I did not pick up on. But you know, you're like, well, this is on Netflix. Why would I, you know, why am I going to buy a Blu-ray of this? I, I don't know, but there is a set of six promotional featurettes here. Uh, just, you know, little short EPK things. I still baffled why some of the streaming services do the Blu-ray and then put out nothing that's really interesting to go with it. I don't, why did you even put it out on Blu-ray? I don't understand the whys of some things and, and not other things. Like I get like kids movies because that way you can watch them in the, in the, van or whatever yeah i don't get like they have geeky stuff where it's just like how are you not releasing this is a tangent <laughs> not real not entirely related to the dry but like if witcher season one existed in like a nice collector's edition blu-ray or 4k set i would be strongly tempted to buy that just as a witcher fan even though i've got witcher at my fingertips on netflix if they had some fancy like oh that's really cool yeah i'd be enticed by cool it. packaging yeah maybe some nice other physical and, but extras. i don't get like the dry the b- bare bones it- <laughs> releases which is what they always are for these things you're like why what does the i mean i get they're like well not everybody has netflix but some people might want to see the dry it's like are there though really <laughs> are there people without netflix who are like but i really want to see the dry yeah i don't think there are netflix mm-hmm. it was an odd choice on your part of all the things i mean i feel like you're better off going for like the the stuff that's like the the cheap slashers and stuff like that that yeah, yeah. there are people who are like i can't afford netflix but i do love to get me some horror movies you know yeah. <laughs> but that yeah, like stuff i own all the coen sense. brothers but i can't buy buster scruggs yeah but exactly. i can buy the, the dry yeah that's yeah <laughs> really they didn't put out buster scruggs that's the one you okay anyway we're gonna move on to our next one we're going over to our buddies at arrow we do enjoy us some arrow video most of the time at the very least you got to say about them that even if they're putting out something you don't share their taste for it Man, they treat it lovingly as hell. They just with slather it with extras and great fix up. And this is not one of their, like we usually talk about their, they bring back older classic films yeah. and just do a great job finally giving them a proper release. Sleep is a brand new, well, 2020 movie that they are releasing here. Uh, it is a weird dreamlike type thriller. Uh, where is this from? Is this Germany? Norway? Norway? I can't remember offhand. Do you remember? I feel like it's Danish or Finnish or Swedish. Something like that. It's from, it's from that it's area. It's a place where they have, everyone has umlauts over yeah. the U's and O's in their name. Anyway. I think so- it's Swedish. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I think you're right. So the story here follows a girl who has come to a small town, uh, Mona. I'm not going to try and pronounce her name. I'm just not. That's too many consonants together without a vowel. And, uh, and she's this town that her mother was in. And she is trying to figure out like what was going on. She was a, at a hotel there. Um, 
that she stayed at and the people around the hotel are a little weird and she keeps having all these weird, really involving dreams that involve the hotel and her mom and various other stuff. The film goes back and forth between timelines, between dreams and reality. I mean, it's one of those we're trying to make a kind of faintly lynchy type horror experience here. I mean, this isn't a slasher or anything like that, that or monsters, what have you, but she is going to figure out what was going on one way or the other. And unfortunately this leads her down some really weird, creepy paths and discoveries about the town. And I think if there's, a, there's the, the weirdest part is like I said, this is not taking place in Germany or something, but there's a whole like fourth Reich storyline that builds in this that I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> that just seems a little absurd. <laughs> I couldn't get into this one either. I think this one has a, has a little bit of a, um... A personality issue at hand, which is that it is, for all intents and purposes, it is a horror movie, but it is also not scary at all in any way whatsoever. Like, it's just sort of um, dreamlike, and there's stuff that you can tell from the way that it's constructed that's supposed to be disturbing or shocking, but it never it never reaches those moments. Like they're there, they're evident in front of you. You can see them. Are you feeling them? No, you're not feeling them. And that's as much as a part of enjoyment of movies. Anything else is like, am I feeling what they're intending? Right. This? Am I feeling shocked? Am I on the edge of my seat? Am I waiting to find out like, Oh, what's really going on? It's kind of early on that I kind of stopped caring what was going on. Like I didn't really it didn't matter to me. And ultimately that kills the movie because it's like, then the reveals are, are worthless to me as a viewer. I'm like, I don't really, it, it, it makes no difference to me what the reveals are. And then the reveals start coming and you're like, okay, yeah. like that's, that's fine because I'm whatever time was spent where I could have gotten vested in this story. It, you didn't spend that time investing me. You spent that time already sort of like setting up these stones that you were going to turn over to reveal something underneath them. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I just, if the story was a little more front loaded from a character standpoint or the horror of it was just handled better. And in this case, I'm not even sure what better means because again, it's well shot. It's well acted. It's, it, it is, on the surface, visibly, if you were to walk into the room, when someone's watching this movie, you'd be like, oh, what is this? Yeah, what this is looks it? really good. Exactly. Yeah. But when you're sitting down watching it, it's like, no, not really. It's just okay. <laughs> like, it's it's okay. I, it's incorporating a lot of fairy tale imagery, but like, you know, or original Brothers Grimm type ideas. And it's one of the movies, it's one of those films at the end, you're supposed to go, how much of what I saw really happened? Yeah. Um, and but how much do you care? I, that's the problem is that by the end, I'm like, I don't care that much yeah. because I don't feel like you ever made me really like this primary character that much. They're very unappealing as a person. They're just blank. They're just mm -hmm. kind of, okay, then I guess this is what we're doing. They're just not very interesting. And I mean, the story, like I said, when it finally gets to the point in the third act where it starts reveal, turning over some of those stones and revealing like, oh, this is the way it's going. I was like, this is kind of dumb. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, and kind of, really? We're going with Nazis? Okay. <laughs> I mean, sure. I guess for some people. I will say, I agree with you. I, I can't say enough about how beautifully this is shot. And uh and just originally, there's a lot of a really original striking imagery in here. But... 
We strongly I, recommend the trailer. <laughs> we strongly recommend you watch the trailer. No, I don't know. There's there's just movies that are that way, though, right? That are just like, again, you see a second of and you're like, oh, I got to see that. Yeah. And then it just doesn't pay off. I mean, I would totally understand if someone I know saw this and was like, I just love this. I think it's a hidden gem. I get it. It's not a bad movie. I'm not going to criticize you for feeling that way. Because right. ultimately, it just didn't draw me in. Or John, clearly. Or me. <laughs> me uh, too. There's a lot of bonus features here. A longtime Arrow stalwart Kim Newman, along with Sean Hogan, talk, give it the commentary. There's visual essays about uh, people about the ideas of ritual and fairy tales, um, there and cultural unconsciousness. There's a lot of stuff talking about the ideas involved in here, which I think is because people saw this and went, "I don't understand what happened." In that movie. <laughs> so you're like, "Oh, well, I guess we have to understand. We have to explain to you what subtext is." And uh, yeah, there's an interview introduction by the director and the star. Uh, I don't know. There's a bunch of stuff in here. Earl puts together a bunch of things, bad behind the scenes footage. I mean, four extra features, it's great. These aren't simple. They're long things. They're like, yeah, this is a cool package, but the movie itself, eh, just not for us, really. Didn't put me to sleep, but I was mildly catatonic. Uh, you know you did there. Uh, we're going to talk now about Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy, which I remember when they were first trying to market this. I'm like, they're making a movie out of Wheel of Fortune? How yeah. are they going to do that? Well, they're making it a fantasy. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> yeah. So I've had a few fantasies watching, this... growing up watching uh, Wheel of Fortune. I didn't know what this. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know what this one was about. Flip, turn my letters, Vanna. <laughs> I guess this was eligible last year for like foreign language film and stuff like that. I it was not on my radar at all until you you know until you gave me the the disc. Right. It's an anthology. It's a romance anthology. It has three separate stories inside. Uh, one of the stories is about um, a woman who meets a guy, they have their first date, and it's incredible, and she is already head over heels, almost like love at first sight, but there's a complication involving her best friend and the man she went on the date with. The second story is about a uh, professor who has written a book that a student, I believe, if I remember this right, she she sees herself in the story that he wrote. And it hints at the fact that they've had some kind of a relationship in the past that can't be sustained in the present. Um, and then the third story is about a woman returning to her, uh, the town she went to high school in for her reunion. And she is a, she's a lesbian and, um, she had a romance with a, with a girl when she was in high school and basically like trying to see where the threads of that romance lay. Um, I liked the first story the most out of the three. Hmm. Um, I found it the most interesting and compelling. Um, uh, and I, overall, I, this is a really, it's a very delicate movie. Yeah. Um, it's not one of those films that you, that they're going to have boom reveal type yeah. stuff. You know, there are exciting moments in it, but they're kind of like, I mean, these, are, this reminds me of like shortcuts, mm -hmm. the Altman film, something like that type of anthology where like, this is just kind of when those 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 moments in any one person's given life that, oh, this is a slightly heated, complicated situation, but felt feels completely plausible. Yeah. It's like exploring those moments. I, th I think I liked all three of those, but it is a film you want to be, A, totally awake for, <laughs> and yes. be, you know, determined to actually pay attention to it. And I think it rewards viewers for that. I mean, it's not a visually like sumptuous film or anything. I mean, it's fine on that level, but this is, you know, a character based 
type thing. You're watching these character-based stories, and they're all just interesting enough to draw you in relatively early on, and they all end in a way that's interesting enough. You're like, okay, I mean, the third of a movie, and that was enough to for me to go, that was good. But they all do feel like you're reading adaptations from a collection of short stories. Which is exactly what it is. Yeah. yeah. I think this is a nice, if you if you saw Drive My Car, and you're like, I'd like to see another movie like Drive yeah. My Car, I think this is something that might scratch the itch. I don't think it's as, as substantial from a from a meal standpoint if we're yeah. describing if we're describing movies as meals <laughs> this is definitely a bag of potato chips that tastes a little bit like uh whatever that's our digital noise car. ranking system now we're gonna change <laughs> um, the title of this show to, i don't know so yeah. cinema meal i don't is, know is uh is junk food cinema taken i i don't know okay. is someone we'll doing just, that, we'll call they, it they, that they've got to have ended that show by now right come on <laughs> um but like it, I think it's a nice follow-up if you really like Drive My Car and you're looking for something in that vein. And you're kind of like, what movies are like that? Because I think that finding something as specific in tone and that kind of character work and stuff that, that Drive My Car has, yeah. I think this is this is well within that neighborhood if you're wanting something like that. Uh, yeah, I like this. I don't know. You know, sometimes it's a case of I can really like something and also be... You've shown me stuff that, like, for instance, I just rewatched um, They Shoot Horses, Don't They?, which we did probably two, three years ago, and has grown into one of my favorite movies of all time. And there are those movies that, like, I'll get in the digital noise stack where it's like, I'll revisit that. I may revisit Toolbox Murders in a couple years. Sure. I don't know that I'm in a rush to revisit this. But it's really good. I mean, you mentioned Drive My Car. This is the same director. Oh, it is? This is the movie he made before oh, well, Drive My Car. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, yeah, no. Well, I feel smart and dumb at the same time. Uh, you got you picked it out of the air. <laughs> like, this reminds me of Drive My Car. Well, there's a good reason uh, okay. for that. Okay, <laughs> good, good, good. All right. Yeah. Uh, so my, my, my Suki Hamaguchi, who they actually, on the Blu-ray, there's actually a 14-minute thir- interview with him, as Ooh. well as a bonus short well, film. It's starting to define him as a filmmaker then, because I yeah. now have an understanding of what kind of movies he makes. Like he's interested yeah. in, he's interested in adult relationships. Yes. And, and the intricacies of adult relationships and adult drama. If, if these two movies are any indication, which I'm assuming they are because they have the same, again, they have the same flavor. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I, you're right. If you like drive my car and you should, it's a really good movie. This is like a nice little sort of like a dessert after that. Go like, Oh, I want to watch more of this. Yeah. This yeah. Totally worth your time. All right, our next movie, a big Hollywood film I've reviewed before. Last night in Soho, and Edgar uh, Wright starts pumping. <laughs> what? Oh, did this put you to oh, sleep? Are you no. that guy? I did not like this one, no! Chris. I did not like last night. This was Soho. in my top ten of the year. Oh, uh, then then we disagree. <laughs> Do you like Edgar Wright films in general? In general, yeah. Okay. Yes. So you, but you would say this is his weakest film, then? Um. I would have to rewatch to be to be honest, and this is where people come at me. I'd have to rewatch uh, Baby Driver because yeah. that also wasn't my favorite thing. That one did not connect with me, um, but this one was a was a real miss with me. This one was, uh, yeah, yeah. This might. I'm trying to think. I I did I did not like this as much as I liked Baby Driver, but I haven't seen Baby Driver but the one time. So uh, I think that. 
Uh, first off, I really like ghost stories, especially when those ghost stories are sort of more of a, I'm seeing moments in history. I don't know why that's yeah. always like a particular favorite thing for me. We're like the character is drowned and we're almost like the, the history, like almost like that character is the one haunting the past rather than the other way around is a technique I've always enjoyed. And it's been a part of some of the really great real life quote, air quotes, ghost stories out there. Uh, this is using that technique where it slowly mutates into you know, the other way around. Mm-hmm. I like all the talent. I mean, I totally in love with the acting skills of Anya Taylor-Joy. She looks like an alien from another planet who is like now officially the person who is in charge of being the diplomat to Earth because she gets it and knows how to act like a human. But you can look at her and still go, you're not human, are you? <laughs> she is this glorious you know, should be um, a debutante, should have been a big star type of person in the, in the fifties who is, uh, wants to be a singer, a lounge singer. And then like the biggest star in the world meets up with the wrong guy, uh, played by Dr. Who <laughs> Matt Smith and, uh, goes down the wrong path. All this is revealed through initially just the dreams of Thomas and McKenzie, who's a young country girl who comes to the big city of London in order to go to the most prestigious fashion school there ends up getting an off-campus place in a much older house run by the the elderly Diana Rigg who died right after making this movie this was her last film and uh finds that the past starts intruding on her present as what starts out as like a glorious series of dreams about the fashion and the whirlwind of music and style from this period turns into a nightmare of toxicity and eventually murder. And she starts trying to figure out, well, what happened to this girl? What happened to this girl I keep seeing and living in the body of? I don't know, man. This worked for me like a thousand percent. I came out of the movie. I was just like, God damn that. I love this may be my favorite Edgar Wright film. Oh, wow. Uh, not, not, not for me. Um, <laughs> not for a couple of my, it's weird too. Like I, there were a couple other friends who were the same thing and I was like, what, how can you not love this film? I don't know. Maybe this just hits all the right spots for me. It's very in love with the time period through music and through, uh, fashion. It's very in love with, uh, it, its own technical aspects of filmmaking. Um, in presenting those, those two worlds visually, uh, I just never engaged with it. It never, there was, it did not click with me. It never, this, it was a movie that I looked at versus a movie that I watched. Like, I just did not feel like I was along for the ride. I felt like I was, I was looking at my TV. (laughs) I don't know how to describe that difference, but it was just, it just, yeah, it just wasn't clicking for me. Hmm. Um, and I can't point to any one thing. I think it's a case of just not every movie's for everybody. Mm. You know, I would, I would, I wish I felt stronger as to the reasons why I didn't. I wish that I could sit here and tell you, oh, because I thought that it was X, Y, and Z, or you know, specific things didn't work. It just, it just never, it just never, never took my hand. Through. It yeah. never pulled me in. Um, and I, and I don't know why that is because I was certainly sat down like optimistic sure because I heard such great things about it and I didn't go in with like oh this is gonna blow me away so it's not like that's what put me off right it was just a case of as the story kind of went on I kind of had the same problem that I did with sleep honestly which is that the story was coming on I became less interested in the whys I became I became less and less interested in the whys as it went on so as the movie becomes more invested in revealing the why, 
I was less interested in the why. Hmm. Uh, so I was at odds with where the movie was kind of going. I think, you know, at some point the movie and I split, <laughs> split directions as, as it wanted me, the further it wanted me to get compelled by the mystery, the more it was pushing me away from wanting the mystery to be revealed. Okay. Um, but you, even you'll admit some of the stuff they pulled off practically is oh, it's kind gorgeous. of amazing. Like it's, it's a gorgeous movie. All the like, stuff with the, the fact that these two girls are sort of occupying the same body in these dreams in the past, some of the stunts that they pull with this, which are all but completely done physically. There's a mo, there's a mo- few moments that there was just no way to do it other than digitally, but it's kind of a remarkable achievement. And some people go, well, why when you could do it the other way? Well, honestly, to some level, it will look better. And because you can. Yeah. And it's there there's a art and beauty to filmmaking and I think part of that can be how how to figure out this stuff. I like that a lot of the bonus features on here focus on just that. Like how did we do all these things in real in the real world and most specifically this dance sequence where the the camera is just constantly moving and whirling and yet and never not focused on these on the characters who are Matt Reeves and the girl, which I'll say, so both of them dancing, but where they switch out one actress to the other in just a blink of an eye over and over and over again. And they did that all in camera, practically. You're like, how? I am rewatching it on the, this 4K going, I still don't see how they pulled this off. Well, this has extensive coverage on how they pulled it off. One with like several cameras that are sort of up high that you can watch from all around and see like the actors, like they're just sort of, they're like hiding under the camera and ready to swoop in at the exact moment to like, take the other's place that has to happen literally as the camera quickly whirls by like Matt Smith. So for like a blink of an eye, a character, that character is off screen. When you come back, it's the other one, like no edits, bang. Yeah. Incredible. Really. And I'm sure they had to rehearse it like 300 dots. It's funny. There's a shot like that in Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy where (laughs) the girl is at the diner and it, and the, the two people get up and leave and run out of the diner. And then the camera gets, does a zoom in on her face and then it zooms back out, and they're sitting back across from her again. Mm-hmm. And I was like, "Oh, they must have like literally ran around, ran at a door, <laughs> sat back down, and then like." So it's funny that we both we watch these two movies that have this like similar use some similar camera mm-hmm. tricks. Um, this might have also maybe it's a case of I needed to see it on a big screen. I don't think mm-hmm. every you know everybody's like, "Oh, everything has to be seen on a big screen." Like, "Oh, if you're going to see the Batman, see it on the biggest screen possible." That kind of stuff. There are literally movies that I've watched on the big screen that I just cannot get into at home. And yeah, the me one too. that comes to mind right away is Aronofsky's The Fountain, which mm. was an audiovisual like experience in a darkened theater on a gigantic screen that when I've tried to watch that movie at home, I'm just not into <laughs> it at all. And I don't know and and I know that. Like I I can recognize that that I'm like whatever thing that whatever magic is happening where that box that you're sitting in and that image in front of you, you're enveloped by it. Yeah. And that, that is your whole existence in that moment. That ain't happening when Fountain's on my TV. Sure. And you feel maybe this would have been and one of those And maybe Last Soho is one of those kind of movies where it's like, maybe I needed to have seen it in the theater. Maybe mm-hmm. it needed to be projected as big as possible I mean, and, and immerse me and have it directly in front of my face with I, nothing Indeed, else. when I saw it in the theater, it was like the secret f- screening at Fantastic Festa. There was excitement because everyone was like... The, one of these has got to be Last Night in Soho, right? Yeah. It's got to be. And then it was, and it was like, ha-ha! So there's that sort of triumphant, <laughs> I knew it! And, you know, getting to see it with a really excited, happy crowd in the best possible projection in a theater. You know, theater people that were there for it. 
that did make a big difference. But I rewatched this and felt like I, I personally got as much, but maybe a lot of that is just sort of like the leftover feelings from that excitement in the film. I know I thought, I, did, I thought it was okay. Okay. And you didn't was, hate it. If, I didn't hate it. I thought it was okay. And I, 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 and it, as we're talking about it, I think I remember, I remember wishing it had more of a female perspective hmm. because it is such a female story that it felt like, and sometimes you just know too much. Like sometimes it's just a case of, I know it's from a male filmmaker, so I'm already coloring it going, well, does he know what he's talking about? Or is he presenting a version of what he thinks that this would be like if he were a woman? Hmm. And, and that was a thought that was a train of thought that I had as I was watching it as well. I thought, I thought it was okay. I well, just, fair enough. You know, it makes me sad. I wish, I wish you had loved, gotten the same thing you know, out of it. I did. It's, uh, once every, Two or three shows, there's a movie we don't agree we, on. Well, there's often ones we don't totally agree <laughs> on, but rarely is there one that we're on like completely opposing yeah. sides on. Uh, th- there's some deleted scenes here, not a huge amount. Like there's about nine minutes of them that don't add anything super new, but definitely color in some of the more details and in, in the relationships here that I actually thought were well worth watching. Like there's storyboards and animatics. Um, there's a lot. Uh, there's a lot of extra features here, and like I said, the stuff that really focuses on how did they do it. A lot of stuff that goes into their exploration of how they recreated Soho in this period of time, which apparently was a nightmare. <laughs> like, cause this is one of the most widely traveled, busiest streets in all of London at like to then and today. And they're like, well, you get it for one hour <laughs> cause it's nighttime. They're like, yeah. fuck, how do we do this? And like, they, it was, it was a challenge. Let's just say that. Um, there's a music video because Anna Taylor joy, like in the movie, she prominently sings a version of downtown, uh, the, the famous song. And so there's a full music video for her singing a more orchestrated version of that Uh, audio commentaries, uh, two different ones. In fact, both of which have Edgar Wright on them. Uh, I thought this, I wish you would love this because this would have been my pick of the week. You know, I think this is a great package they put together and so rarely for a brand new studio wide release film is the the home release that good. Mm. Usually they're like, well, we'll wait and then we'll sell the rights to, you know, some other like arrow or criterion or somebody yeah. else. And they'll do all that stuff. This is one where I'm like, Oh, they actually put the work in to make the home release really worth owning. But we're going to go on to our final movie this week, which is Eternals, which is going to be the second film we disagree on this, this week. Cause I really like Eternals. I rewatched it. And I, I knew it when I saw it in the theater, I was like, I was genuinely really in love with it. And then watching it the second time at home, I went, this requires a theater to some extent to get some of what they're going for here. But also, this definitely is about half hour longer than it needs to be. And some of it is kind of dull and not all of it works. But I still am like, I think this is about, for me, and sort of in the, one of those movies at the halfway point for the MCU films. I know that you did not feel the same way. I did not feel the same way. I found it overwritten in spaces where it didn't need to be overwritten and underwritten in spaces where it needed more explanation. Um, I think that it's got a weird, uh, I think it's constructed weird. I don't know that there's things, there's a lot of individual things. I remember don't, don't take me to task on it. Cause I, I don't know if I can rattle them off, but there's things that I am watching the movie where I was like, well, I, that doesn't make sense to me. I don't know why you would do it that way. Or I don't know who that character is. So this is meaningless to me. And I don't, I realize that the movie's telling me this should mean something. Mm-hmm. Um, this was, uh, 
I thought kind of a mess and as lauded as the visuals were, I think that there's a lot of the 4k that there's some, the, there's some gorgeous establishing shots, but there's also a lot of other stuff between the establishing shots. that looks like straight up trash, <laughs> like low, like that whole 30 minutes where they're in the woods it's like low contrast. Everything's gray. You that, can't make out any of the action. It looks like garbage. That's on the television. one criticism I'll give you. That hundred percent. Um, this is shot way too dark. Yeah, there with way way too little contrast. I'm watching the 4K version, and even in the theater, I'm like, why is this all so dark? Uh, there's no reason for it to be a lot of the time. Yeah, it's so dark that yeah, and a lot of the scenes that are should be more vibrant, they just don't really pop that much. I'm like, wow, this was a weird decision for this film that feels like, especially with the source material, it should be much brighter and more colorful. I Kind of a, a, a weird choice. And I think especially when some of those fight scenes, there's really dramatic stuff happening in the middle of those fight scenes. So it's kind of important to see what's going on with the characters. I can't even make out what's on their faces. I don't know why the movie has a bad guy. Like, I, st- I don't understand why there's a villain in the movie. There's not really a good reason for that. Because there's to be not one. a villain in the movie, because by the time you get to the end of the movie, like, the, the bad guy stuff, the stuff involving the deviants is so irrelevant to what's happening in the movie. And there's a lot of that that's like, you don't realize how meaningless certain moments or actions are until they're in the rear view. And you're like, why did that happen? Why was that executed that way? Why did they do it like that? There's a bunch of that coupled with the fact that for whatever reason, you you see Ragnarok and everybody points to Thor Ragnarok as this movie that wears its Kirby influences from a visual standpoint. And, and it does to a lot of, of degree. And you're watching this and I'm just like, the colors aren't even the same of the character's costumes. Like Icarus from the Marvel comics has a distinct costume. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, he's just wearing like a blue bodysuit that has a little bit of gold on it. And I was like, where's the red? Where's the distinct circles on his costume? Like, there's there's a lot of it just simply from a design point as well that I found oddly reserved and boring for a movie that is a weird thing of like uh, taking a really big swing like, mm-hmm. oh, it takes a really big swing, but it's almost as if the pitchers that the ball hadn't left the hand yet or something. If I'm using some kind of a metaphor, yeah, it's, conceptually, like, it's like, what are you swinging at? Conceptually like, for the Marvel Universe, it's a gigantic swing. Yeah. Visually, it's trying to stay in even more conservative terms than most Marvel films do. I think it. I think another mistake that it does in an odd way is tries to make it. I realize you have all of these characters to deal with. I honestly think the movie could have benefited from characters, from some of the characters being defined by their powers only without further characterization in the long run. But again, that's something you don't know until the rear view. And you're like, I would have cared about X, Y, and Z more had you not devoted so much time to these other players who I realize you're trying to get me to fall in love with every single person in the cast so that when I get my happy meal toy that I'm (laughs) excited that I got Gilgamesh and I'm excited (laughs) that I got this guy. But like, really, if your story is going to focus around like, like it's going to be Cersei, it's going to be Icarus to some degree because he is not well-defined and he has a big, he has a big moment that, is sort of like it doesn't really it that moment doesn't hit because I don't I don't know who he is really more than anybody else. Mm-hmm. There's like a weird 
it tries to treat all the characters as equal. I get the compulsion to do that from a screenwriting standpoint, but I think it ultimately ends up hurting the film. I just found it to be Marvel's Marvel is so confident a lot of the times with their movies where they have a very strong idea of what they want it to be. And if not, then they're forming what they want it to be in post. And this was the only one of their films that, and it's not, it's not my least favorite Marvel movie. Um, but it is the one that to me felt the least confident, the most like a, a, a guess, will this work? You know, is this going to take, can we tell the story this way? What will people think about this? Like it felt like there was way more shrugging guesswork mm-hmm. than the confidence that I've come to expect from the Marvel brand. And I honestly think that to some people that that's a positive, that that feeling of, well, we're going to try this and see what sticks. I think a lot of people have responded to and been like, oh, it's one of Marvel's best simply because it has the, that feel of uncertainty, not like they're making it up as they go along, but that they're going to try something and maybe it'll stick and maybe it doesn't. And I right. think there are people that respond to that really positively. I, I definitely was one of those where yeah. I was like, they're taking some chances here, but I think really one of the problems, and I think she's a f- just uh, I'm a very good director, Chloe Zhao, but, and Marvel has this history of taking these directors that have mainly done little indie films and going, well, I'm going to give you your chance to do something huge here and we're going to be support you and your vision 100%. I mean, most directors they've worked with have been very happy to report that their experience with Marvel was very positive. I mean, Edgar Wright even was like, look, we just didn't end up seeing eye to eye with the movie we wanted to make, but they didn't do anything wrong. You know, uh, this is just not her wheelhouse. You look at the movie she made, you watch Nomadland and you're like, why would you get this person to make a one of the most epic in scope Marvel films yet that's going to change the direction of the whole universe. And it's all shot like Nomadland. It's all grays and blues. And you're like, this is not, this is absolutely the wrong choice. It was, it was an uphill battle for me anyways. I have to admit from just a Marvel fan standpoint, I actually made, I never tweeted the joke and then I found out it was true. And I was like, my mind was blown because I was like, I don't like the black Knight as a character. And I know he's in the movie. And I don't like the Eternals as characters. I like Cersei, okay. But I can, I don't really dig any of the other Eternals. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, so you already have two strikes against me. I don't like the Black Knight. I don't <laughs> like the Eternals. And I, I remember I, I either tweeted or almost tweeted, the only way it could get worse for me is if Gilgamesh was in the movie. Because he's one of my least favorite Avengers. Like, I think Gilgamesh is, Marvel's Gilgamesh just flatly sucks. <laughs> and then... I didn't even know that then they I was, had made him an adventure. And then I was in line and was like at McDonald's and saw that like, okay, they have the thing and it's all the eternal action figures. And so they have one of every single character. And I was like, Gilgamesh, they did put Gilgamesh in this. So I'm like, not only do you have black Knight, the Eternals, but you also added Gilgamesh. I mean, to be fair, like, huh. he's actually one of the most likable people in yeah. the movie. Like that's, that's true. He's not, he actually is not like he is in the comics at all. <laughs> um, but this, this probably, you know, this was already fighting an uphill battle with me as a, as a comic fan, but I was open-minded to the idea of make me fall in love with the Eternals. Make me understand why you're making this movie. Uh, Marvel will get this wild hair up their ass where they'll be like, this is what we're doing. And we're going to, we're going to keep doing this over and over and over and over like the Inhumans. And it was like in their publishing as well, where it's just like, nope, we're going to, if you, we're going to make sure it's in humans nonstop. You're going to eat a steady diet of inhumans for two years straight, <laughs> you know, and they yeah. get, they get that sometimes where it's like, no, 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 this is what we're going to do. They get that way about recently. They got that way about with the, uh, characters from squadron Supreme. Really? Where it's like, 
we're going to put Hyperion in everything. <laughs> Hyperion's going to show up all the freaking time, whether you like it or not. <laughs> Everybody's going to be using Hyperion. You can't open a book without Hyperion in it. Sentry was that way for a while. Oh, God. Sentry was the worst. And Marvel just does that where they'll get really, really fixated on, like, like this is the thing. We're going to blow the dust off of it, and we're going to try to get people to engage with it and love it through sheer force of will. Right. And I was kind of hoping I would see the value in the Eternals as a unit of characters. Uh, and I still am not an Eternals fan. It's one of those, when you watch the Disney Plus shows, you're like, well, no expense was spared. These look gorgeous. They look like movie quality, especially like Loki. You're like, this yeah. is movie quality, a special effects and vision. You've got a movie with this many characters that's opening up so many new storylines. Who in the fuck said, let's make this a movie instead of one of these TV shows where we could have had enough time to actually explore all these characters? I mean, that's the one thing I'll, I'll say absolutely huge misstep of trying to make this a movie rather than doing that. When they already knew that so much of what's going on right now in phase four is being set up by these shows, like all this multiverse stuff, it's all just leading in from the show. So it's not like they're worried ones people will be confused. I just think from a, I, if I can, if I can armchair quarterback this, it's like, I think the beginning, all of the exposition that Selma Hyatt gives then it goes to London, and it's all the London stuff where the Deviants attack, and then the Eternals get together. I think you start with the death of the Salma Hayek character, and that's what draws them together. Mm -hmm. You don't need all that stuff at the beginning at all, and you don't know that until you've gotten past the 30-minute mark where, she, where her character dies. Mm -hmm. And it's like, then now the plot starts to click into place. Well, and, then and I'm sort of like, that should have been the moment that's like, oh, that character died all these strange, interesting characters that don't seem like they have anything in common come together and we learn who they are and why they've come together. Right. And then the plot takes off. That first, what is it? It's only like 45 minutes of the movie that's de dedicated to just horse shit in the rear view. <laughs> but it's, but you don't know that it is until it's over and you're like, it's a I lot didn't of, need any of that. It's a lot of setup for melancholy. A lot of which you realize by the end is ultimately only serves a purpose there so they can introduce, uh, reintroduce a character as the Black Knight, which is nothing until the yeah. final, like post credits. But you're like, so all this, they could have made it where these two main characters were just still again, in a relationship. And, and again, <laughs> you don't know that the deviants aren't going to figure into the plot until the until the movie's over and you're like oh the deviants never really figured into the plot yeah. and also they should have found something more original to do in designing them yeah. uh, uh, they're just okay we've seen this a lot yeah. in a lot of movies I, mean, I said that in our initial review that was my biggest criticism the deviants are boring looking. They, they look like weird people like they do in the kirby comics well if you do uh if you actually these extras are also i believe on i believe they're on the disney plus release of eternals um usually they'll put the bonus features yeah. but i know they're on the 4k and if you get the digital copy there's immortalized for about a 11 minutes, which is just an overall look at the film. Walks of Life, which is looks specifically at the cast and characters. There's a three minute, two and a half minute gag reel. Uh, there's about five and three quarters minutes of deleted scenes. And there's an audio commentary by the director, the uh, production visual effects supervisor, who must have been like, seriously, you want me on the commentary? Okay. Uh, <laughs> and additional visual effects supervisor, which she must have been like, look, if I'm doing this, you're coming too. <laughs> but I don't want to. You're getting paid. Get over here. Anyway, yeah. So it's a technical, it's more of a technical ex examination of a film that biggest problem is probably the technical aspects of it. So weird call, weird choice. You feel like a movie like this, if you want a commentary, you get the cast who must have gotten to know each other pretty well on set yeah. and get them to just make a fun commentary. Another weird, super dry choice for the 
stuff. So this is not a great home release of this film overall. Like I said, I like it a lot more than you do. I've been focusing on my negatives in this review because I've already given this a positive, talked about all the positives. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, there are yeah. a lot of things to say that are worth criticizing here for sure. Uh, but let's go to our pick of the week, oh, God. which I don't know. I mean, I, I guess... Obviously, you have ruled out Last Night in Soho, which otherwise would have been mine. But I say other than that, it's FX 1 and 2, which is so nice to finally have both of those on Blu-ray. But also, some of those bonus features, although they are older things, are pretty cool and fill in a lot of the gaps. I'm looking down the barrel at three different choices. I think the best movie that I watched, just objectively, is probably Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy. I'm not in the mood to rewatch it. It's hard for me to tell somebody, like, hey, go go buy that. <laughs> um <laughs> Wayne's World is the one that, like, I've revisited again and again and again. If you like Wayne's World, I don't know how you made it to 2022 without owning a copy of yeah. Wayne's World. It's, it's a triple dip. Though, uh, so yeah. I'm like, I can't even recommend yeah. that one. I'm and like, that's the one that I know I will continue to watch. I'll watch yeah. it in a year. I'll watch it in right. three or four years. Like, I know out of everything we've watched, that's the one I'm going, I have seen the most and will watch the most in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the best kind of like stealth bang for your buck bargain thing. And I'm, I'm very, I'm very much going retail. Like, most of the time, my pick of the week is about what I want or what I would suggest. This is very much like a a, a consumer report pick of the week. I think your best value for your money when you're down there and you're clicking the links on the Amazon affiliate on the one of us dot net not dot nut page. Um, if dot nut is available, we'd like to purchase that FX and FX two. Yeah. Um, that's, that's going to be your, your most bang for your buck. I think for a lot of people just have not seen these movies. I I don't even remember the last time I saw either one of them on streaming anywhere. I I remember when I posted about this, people were like, wait, what is this? I've never even heard of this. So that's a lot of quantifying to get to that point. But I just wanted to be clear because it's not even my favorite movie that I watched this week. It's just the one that I think if I was going to tell somebody, Bang blind by this, yeah. Blind by FX one and two, yeah. Agreed. Well, that's going to be it. Thank you, John Golson, for joining me. Do you have anything you Thank need you to Chris tell people Cox. about going on? Out there? Uh, hey, I um, did inks for my first full length comic book ever. It's the latest issue of Halloween Man. It's got Jekyll and Hyde on the cover, and it's available uh, on Comicsology. Halloween Man on Comicsology. Check that out. And I'll be back. I don't know if it's going to be pre or post South by Southwest. I'm trying to get right. Who's up next? to be done with this movie stack before like, you know, Wednesday. So we can be like, okay, we can, so we can knock this out real quick and I can edit it. But I'm also, because he is going to be my partner at South by Southwest this yeah. year, my cameraman, I'm also sending him all these like advanced screeners of stuff for South <laughs> by to watch. So we don't have to see him on the ground. <laughs> so I'm like, I don't know if that's going to happen, but we'll, we'll do our best. Nice. <laughs>